I am Pearlie Chen from HTC. I'm here today with Dr. Robert Lewis, the chief surgeon here at the Hogue Memorial Hospital. I wanted to, to learn uh, your journey from landing here as a neurosurgeon to discovering the magic of using a virtual reality's power in helping patients understand better of their healthcare journey to really piloting um, this enterprise-wide adoption in this hospital. How has that journey looked like? Give us a little peek into that initial spark of inspiration and, and what mustn't have been an easy journey to, to achieve what you've achieved here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of an interesting story. Before I was a neurosurgeon, I was a neuroanatomist. Um, so I studied three-dimensional maps of the brain, and so I, I really got involved in that. I loved it. Um, and then when I became a neurosurgeon, I was actually kind of disappointed uh, with our ability to understand and prepare. We're looking at these kind of two-dimensional slices of the brain, and I'm like, the human brain is really bad at putting together slices and making a three-dimensional model. I use the analogy, it's like an old school, you know, Disney's first cartoon where it's like a flip book of Mickey Mouse, you know, Steamboat Willie. Um, and that's a really bad way of telling a story. You know, the brain is not good at it. Uh, so when I first saw the virtual reality in a patient-specific basis, it was actually introduced to me by a rep who, you know, was always trying to sell me something. I wasn't really, didn't really want to take the meeting. And then I was like, you know what, I'll just take this. And, and I saw the technology and I put the, head, the VR headset on for the first time. And for the first time ever, I'm able to see what I'm going to see at surgery, but in advance. So it, it allowed me to see inside this patient's brain and prepare for surgery. And just the light bulb went off in my mind. Like, uh, wow, you know, this is totally different than the way we currently do it. I always say that, you know, a lot of changes in healthcare are kind of small iterations over time. To me, this didn't feel like that. This felt like a big leap forward in our my ability to prepare and plan for surgery. So then I had that experience of, of actually using it on that patient and where it led me to change the surgical plan. From that point forward, I was like, I, you know, I need to be using this all the time. I need to be um, helping to uh, advance the way that it's used uh, and, and develop better understanding because, uh, you know, the more we study study technology, the better users we can be of it. And as physicians, the ultimately, ultimate you know, a beneficiary of that is the patients. Absolutely. And we're innately 3D animals. All of our senses are yes. three-dimensional, but oftentimes we're limited by these 2D information and interfaces that we deal with. And to me, it's such a no-brainer that we want to understand our patient's anatomy and, and plan accordingly in, in a natively three-dimensional way. So when that light bulb moment went off for you, well, was it obvious that everyone else should be rushing to adopt this technology so that they don't practice their craft on their patients, but instead safely in the error-free um, error environments. Interestingly, it's in, it's obvious or it's been obvious in our experience to everyone except surgeons. So you would think that they would want a better way to understand the surgical plan. And many do and are adopting these technologies. There's now you know, more than 250 sites which are using this you know, technology nationwide and some of the nation's top academic um, institutions such as Stanford, Mount Sinai, Case Western, the Mayo Clinic. So a lot of the high-level uh, university centers are using this technology now and some of them at scale to prepare and plan for surgery. But it wasn't you know an easy journey um, for surgeons. By comparison, when I brought this technology to show it to our hospital leadership team, our administration team, the CEO, COO, uh, they put the headset on, and I remember specifically our chief nursing officer uh, said like. 
listen, if this is my brain, I definitely want you practicing beforehand. In fact, I would kind of consider it malpractice to not be using it. And that was a bit of a reach, but the, the impact was so obvious that the hospital made the investment, the initial investment in this one system. So let's see how this works. Um, and uh, that's kind of uh, what we have seen um, in scaling this technology across the country is that uh, it's the, the value is kind of paradoxically intuitively more obvious to um, patients and hospital administrators um, and executives and leaders than it has been to physicians. And I look at this as, 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 a, as a feature or a result of surgeons' egos. You know, brain surgeons, we think highly of ourselves. Uh, many people will say, you know, there's books out there like, oh, Hands of God or Gifted Hands or something like that. Right. So if you write a book like that about yourself, obviously you think pretty highly of yourself. Um, I, I guess we all have that to some degree, but in reality, um, ego gets in the way of our ability or to learn new things in many cases. Uh, so in, you know, in meditation, mindfulness, there's a, this concept of beginner's mind. Like if I, if I think I don't know anything, then my mind is a blank canvas and I can learn. Surgeons, are, many are at the opposite end of the spectrum where I think I know everything. And so I don't need anything else. I, I you know, I'll get like, uh, well, I don't need to practice. I just kind of put my hand here on the patient's head and I know that I have to drill the hole next to my second knuckle. I'm like, you know, right. that's a very cookie cutter, you know, templated approach. Whereas right. we're in the era of personalized precision medicine. And to me, VR is personalized precision surgery. Absolutely. Just like when your chief nursing officer said that if that was his brain, he would want you to have, right, have practice. And I think Yale Medical School also did a similar study that VR trained surgeons make six times less errors right. than those that are trained in conventional methods. It almost is a moral imperative for this technology to play a role in the patient's care journey. So how do you advise other hospitals or healthcare providers, surgeons who are curious about this technology but unsure how to get adopted? Kickstart kick it. It is, um, in my experience, you know, often you're met with skepticism um, as far as the, the, you know, the surgeons will often not see initially the value. And I said, you know, why don't you try it out in a couple of cases? Why don't you experience what it's going to pick a complicated case and, you know, practice it yourself and see what it's going to feel like. Experience it. Virtual reality is an experiential technology and you have to really experience it to understand its value. Um, but even that um, has not um, been, you know, again, we, we run into the problem of ego. Where the message does carry is, as we've demonstrated here at Hogue, uh, that more patients want to come here and have their surgery because they feel more engaged as a result of VR-based, you know, understanding of their anatomy and surgical plan compared to traditional mechanisms. So where this rings true for surgeons is that it allows them to grow their practices, which we're all trying to build the types of practice and the types of patients that we want to take care of in an ideal situation. And we've shown that in multiple different specialties that VR can be useful for that. So it's kind of, um, you know, a different way of looking at it. Physicians, you know, need to build their practices. And so as a tool to help help engage their patients is where we found a lot of successes. And, 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 and in no area has this been more impactful than in pediatric surgery, pediatric neurosurgery, because you can imagine how difficult it is for a family and their child to be preparing for brain surgery on their child. Uh, so the ability of the surgeon together with the family, the parents and the child to be in a shared VR experience really does deliver that kind of preparation. And it takes away the fear. We can't take away 
away the tumor in the, in the office, right? Yeah. But there's the fear of the unknown, and really what we've seen is this technology, because of the experiential nature, can take away the fear of the unknown for the patients. And we see the transition in their face. You know, the look on their face changes from kind of the, this like stunned, you know, oh my God, you just told me I have a brain tumor, to uh, almost gamifying it. Almost so they're like, like, you know, like video game. yeah, like, okay, we're going to shoot this thing. If it's a little kid, like, let's blast it. Let's get it out of there. Um, and it changes the mindset and really getting the patients on board, whether it's adults or children to help, you know, yeah, let's, let's, let's solve this. Let's fix it. Uh, and it, it, that happens over a, you know, five minute experience in VR. So it doesn't take a long amount of time. So in addition to drastically improving the clinical outcome, patient engagement is another very important area where you can get in with the patient and really help them ease their anxiety, especially in pediatric cases, but also put them in the driver's seat. You That's were right. telling me that you make them the CEO of their healthcare decisions, whereas you, you, you execute a COO and you're the chief medical officer as well. How does that pan? Now, how do you empower patients other than maybe pediatric patients to, to through understanding in, in the, the um, uh, 360 and 3D model of their anatomy to make decisions that might otherwise not be possible? So, I mean, as I, as I was saying earlier, the, the, you know, the, this black and white two-dimensional models, if, if we think surgeons are bad at reconstructing them, imagine a patient that's never seen an MRI before. I've already just told them they have a brain tumor, and now I'm trying to explain to them this like black and white grayscale thing, uh, and well, this is real near your vision nerve or your hearing nerve and the image is upside down and backwards. I mean, patients, you can just see their eyes glaze over um, because the imaging, the slices of images as they're given to us off the MRI are not intuitively obvious to understand. Um, so they, do, they don't understand it. So by, by comparison, you know, these models that we're seeing behind us, it's obvious that this is a skull. Here's the eye socket or the orbit, you know, here's the nose. And so it actually decreases the amount of time it takes them to understand and increases their own comfort level. And, and, and we studied this in, a, in, the, in you know, a three-year study. And, but, you know, they've self-reported significant improvements in their level of understanding, in their feeling of preparation, and ultimately in what they describe as their own outcomes. They are having better outcomes because they were better prepared going into the surgery. So therefore, they can be their own best ally or you know, a partner in, in achieving the best outcomes. That's, that makes a very different patient journey than yes. what was possible before, where they come in anxious, and nervous, depressed, and not feeling like complete, things are completely outside of their control. Now they they can be in the control seat, um, being an ally on the same team as, as you, um, making those decisions together. I imagine that completely changes and the experience. It, and it's never been like that in healthcare. There was, we've always had this kind of paternalistic, uh, right. you know, doctor says this and patient does this, you know, uh, and patients didn't ask any questions, you know, in the 1960s and 70s. We are in a different era now. Not only is that we don't have that anymore, patients are coming in more informed. We want them to be more informed. We want to help them be more informed. And by giving them the correct information in a, in a way that is easy to digest. And this is where VR truly shines. It helps create an experience which is digestible and understandable, whether that's in preparing for surgery or in experiencing something that may help you to uh, help with pain um, or in uh, visiting a place that, you know, you may never have been able to. And now you're, you know, in your final days, we can recreate that in, in your own home. And the adoption of this technology here at Hogue also demonstrated a significant ROI as well, increasing patient conversion rate to 96% from originally 64%. So it's been a very clear differentiation for, for the hospital 
model to to deliver a commercial value on much better clinical and patient outcome as well. So why do you imagine is the pushback or hesitation from the rest of the, the medical world to adopt for, for all of the above reasons? So again, you know, healthcare is intrinsically slow to move as far as technologies. Um, th there's a lot of skepticism. I, I went to this healthcare improvement course at Intermountain Health System in Utah, which is an excellent health system. Uh, and they talked that the, the, the instructor of the course talked about it as the craft of medicine. Physicians, you can imagine, are like wizards trying to keep their secrets up their cloak so that nobody finds out, you know, the way we do things. Because if it's exposed that, you know, that this could be solved with technology, then maybe we would, you know, we'd be at risk of losing our mystical powers. Um, so th I, they, this is the craft of medicine theory. Um, I don't want that. I want to like democratize. Yes, Anything exactly. Anything that serves a patient. And um, there's also a, a, a the other thing I talk about regularly is there's a, a regularly expressed fear of dependence on technology. Well, aren't you worried you're going to be dependent on this? I said, listen, don't kid yourself. We're all dependent on technology for every aspect of our life, from our phones to our cars to our toilets. You know, and in the operating room. That's less. right. Yes. Um, um, that's a theoretical fear. We can't, I wouldn't, I don't take out a brain tumor with a knife and spoon. I have millions of dollars worth of equipment already that we use that we are already dependent on. Now, when I go and volunteer in Sub-Saharan Africa, we do it with a lot less. But here, in, in, in the, you know, where we have these technologies, we should be leveraging them to optimize patient outcomes. So rather than that theoretical fear of uh, dependence on technology, I don't have it. My real fear as a physician, as a surgeon, is that I'm going to make a mistake that could have been prevented. And if there's technology that can help to prevent some of those mistakes, not only do I want to use it and have access to it, I want to use it all the time so I know where its limits are, so I know where it shines, so I know exactly how it can be best used to help every patient that you know comes into my office, that comes into my operating room. In fact, one in four surgeons who use this technology to, to do pre-surgery planning end up changing their surgical plans. So that's, that's right. the, the fear of the making an actual life or death mistake on a patient that can be prevented from just adopting this simple technology that um, can really change one's life and, and your life, right? How, how did you cope with that fear of what if I make a mistake on this person on the operating table? Versus, like, can you even uh, remember what it was like pre-VR? The, the emotions and anxiety you're coping with? Yes, um, you know, because that was the way I trained is without this right. stuff, you know, without these technologies. Uh, and for the first few years of my practice, we didn't have these. Um, so uh, not that we don't have fear still. I mean, every time I go into surgery, I'm, you know, I'm kind of mentally preparing, but this takes the mental preparation from a kind of thinking through it to an actual simulation. Yeah, yeah, you're experiencing it before you get there. Um, but, you know, I do believe uh, this will become, based on, you know, continued publications, this will eventually become the standard of care for how we prepare and plan for surgery, and also with the augmented reality, how we perform surgery. But as I said, that takes a long time to happen. Uh, a good example is, in, 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 is surgical navigation. So currently, the navigation in brain surgery is the standard of care. In fact, if you do an operation without navigation and you had a problem, 
you probably end up in a courtroom somewhere. Um, but that took 15 years from the time the technology was introduced until the time where it became standard of care. That is almost you know an entire you know cycle you know through of, of two two residency classes. So neurosurgery seven years of residency. So two full cycles of residence through in order for it to become standard of care. And this is where we're seeing um, although there are surgeons of every age that are innovative and adopt new technologies, um, we tend to see it more in surgeons that are earlier in their career that are you know they grew up more with technologies and smartphones and, and, and with VR. And so they're more likely to adopt it in their earlier formative years of their career versus you know later in their practice. To accelerate adoption though, do you feel like all the other hospital systems need to identify a, a champion like yourself to to really demonstrate and, and champion across the system for, for that adoption curve or should be the administrators be listening and, and innovating? What is the right approach? So I would say it's a bit of both. Um, uh, in the early days of technology and as you're starting to scale, um, it's needed to have champions, to have people that are vocal advocates that in the clinical on, setting, recognize the value of certain technologies. This is kind of you know adoption curve. You know these are the early adopters, the innovators, and the early adopters. You'd say that those are roughly two and a half percent of, of the population. Yep. You know, um, as the evidence grows um, and more uh, high-level centers that are con considered to be kind of beacons of the field uh, deploy these technologies, it starts to become you know the movement towards standard of care starts to happen. So again, that takes a long time. Um, it it cannot be, though, that for the entire life cycle of a new technology that there is a, a physician champion at every location and every specialty. That right. it just it did, isn't scalable. So I, I talk about this concept of critical mass. You know, that ultimately, has, has, in order for it to start to kind of the snowball start to grow itself, you have to get to this kind of critical mass of users. Um, and I think we're, we're getting there now um, at the intersection of the sophistication of the software with the sophistication of the hardware and the experience of this kind of early adopter, innovator, uh, and then starting to get towards the kind of middle part of the bell curve uh, for, for users, surgeons to be adopting it more at scale at, at, a, at a larger number of institutions. Is that the consideration that led you from championing your clinical use case to a, to a hospital-wide adoption across specialties? Um, so my experience in how it helped me to improve my practice right. and my ability to care for people, I, I mean, I was willing to share. My parents are both teachers, so I love to teach. Um, and uh, right. although we're not a teaching institution, um, we have got, you know a group of uh, you know of physicians and surgeons that you know kind of are constantly sharing ideas uh, and trying to uh, you know lead to um, improving the way we do things. Constant you know uh, performance improvement. Um, and so I you know because of the experience that I had, I wanted to share this with other surgeons, and the hospital supported that as well because you know it was beneficial to our patients. So. Um, Ultimately, that continued to evolve in my mind from the surgical preparation to the other non-surgical applications of VR, because you know I have this idealistic you know idea in my mind that you know I can help two, maybe three people a day with a knife with, right. in, in surgery. Ultimately, I, if I can help develop a technology which can help thousands or millions of people over time, then the impact I can leave uh, on the world, on my patients, but on the population can be bigger than I can leave just with my surgical practice alone. So yeah, this is what absolutely. motivates me to be involved in these technologies, many of which are way outside of neurosurgery. Right. I, just, I like that we, you know, the, the power, for example, of the impact of introducing VR for chronic pain and the 100,000 Americans we lose every year to the opioid epidemic. I mean, 
if we can make a dent in that, you know, even a small impact, then you know, just imagine the number of lives we're saving, um, and and a technology that's very scalable and very affordable. I mean, you know, uh, we're talking about a couple of thousand dollars for you know a um, piece of technology that could save this patient from addiction and ultimately death. And it's not just about saving lives; also bring the improved quality of life that's to right. hundreds of millions of people that suffer from chronic pain, whether that's lower back pain or other kind of that's right. chronic pain. Um, um, and, and that that's very profound and easy to to achieve. This piece of technology is so easy to implement; brings improved quality of life for pain management, even save lives. Um, what are some of the patient side pushbacks that you've encountered so far in evangelizing this technology? So one of the more common, uh, you know, uh, things we that people are worried about is you know they may have experienced VR in the past and they might have had motion sickness. This is the, one of the more common concerns or complaints that we worry about. Um, in my patient population, with, with a lot of experience in this now, I don't find this to be much of a problem anymore, meaning very few patients actually get that. It used to be a problem with the older generations of headsets. The refresh rate, you know, kind of get, gave you almost like a strobe light effect, you know, while you're in right. VR. And so it led to something called vestibulo-ocular delay. Mm -hmm. So when you turn your head, the, the, the headset is just a little bit delayed to catch up. That and so that's what creates the right. dissonance and the nausea and the vertigo. Um, with the modern headsets, you know, this isn't a problem anymore. The refresh rate is, you know, equivalent to what our eye can capture. So, um, uh, that, you know, that problem is, is increasingly being solved. Um, uh, the other is, uh, is a, uh, I'm not sure how exactly how to put it, but a, 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 the concept of if something is meant to be real, but doesn't appear exactly real, then the brain doesn't always accept it. So uh, again, with prior generations of headsets and prior iterations of software, um, some of the, you know, it, if it was like meant to be a scene in a forest, but the resolution was too low, the brain doesn't accept it as, you know, as a therapeutic place to be. Um, similar to, this is going to be an odd Hollywood reference, but in the movie The Matrix, you know, they initially didn't, the, the, the plugged-in versions of the brains did not accept uh, the utopian version of the world they had because it wasn't r real to them. It wasn't achievable. So they had to put them in, a, in, a, in a re an actual version of the world where there was good and bad things happening. Huh. So in VR, um, if there's a, uh, if it isn't, um, if the resolution isn't sufficient enough to, to make it look real, which now we're getting there with the, the modern headsets, then it's better that it look like a cartoon because you're not asking the brain to accept that this is a 3D video. So oh, Kenny Valley. Yes, exactly. You're not asking the brain to accept that this is, um, you know, real. You're putting them in a world where they can do things they would otherwise not be able to do. Reality plus. That's, reality that's plus. Exactly <laughs> right. yeah, yes. So um, right. the, 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 those two things are now coming closer and closer together with the sophistication of graphics production. I mean, you know, I always use the example of, uh, um, of Disney, you know, as kind of having the, the mastery of uh, using animation to capture emotion. I mean, they really do an amazing job at whatever emotion they're trying to pull from you, uh, they're able to create. I mean, I'm not sure if you've seen, you know, some of these, you know, Moana and these, I mean, they're unbelievable. Um, you know, uh, Encanto was the one I was watching recently. And, you know, they make you feel what they intend you to feel. When we can create those type experiences in VR, I believe this will be the potentially most impactful um, use of the technology because the number one contributor to human health and disease is our own behavior, more so than our genetics. We 
make ourselves well or sick by how we behave. And in order to change behavior for the good, you need a motivation. And emotion is the most powerful motivator of all. So if we can leverage the Disney Hollywood ability to capture emotion into a VR experience where the patient feels moved by it, then they may feel moved to change their behavior for the betterment of their own health. For example, stopping mm. smoking mm. or stopping with an addiction. Right. Um, it's, it could take a minute of an experience to create a lifelong change in your behavior if it's crafted powerfully. But virtual reality is supposedly this amazing storytelling machine where yes. it's highly advantageous to de deliver such a emotional yes. impact. So what do you think is still missing in today's therapeutic uh, virtual reality experiences to pull those strings further? Uh, so uh, we've actually looked quite a bit into this and are working on solving it. Um, two, two main things, I think. Number one is the sophistication of the software. Um, like the production quality has like has not caught up with the sophistication of the hardware yet. So the VR headsets are capable of rendering whatever we can produce, but the budget for a medical application for VR for chronic pain, let's say it's a couple of million dollars we have to budget to create this whole application for pain. By comparison, for Disney to develop the water effect in Moana or Finding Nemo was $500 million. So the budget to develop health care applications for VR is a fraction of the, of what is used in Hollywood. And, and But we need to get to that same production quality. So that's one. And the second is the storytelling. So we, we need to leverage, again, Hollywood has the ability to, in a half an hour show or a two hour movie, really pull emotion from you. I mean, I watch the movie Forrest Gump and every single time I cry, still now, I mean, I've seen it 50 times and it, it brings tears to my eyes. Absolutely. There's no, what else do we have in our lives that's able to regularly, and Hollywood has mastered that. We need Hollywood storytelling to come into healthcare and help us craft these stories in VR in order to really create that emotional impact, which will ultimately lead to the behavioral change for the betterment of health that we're looking for. Calling for all storytellers yes. out there to yes. join the medical <laughs> virtual reality adoption journey. Wow, that's very insightful and not something that I've heard often. In addition to the storytelling quality and production value, what are some of the other hurdles that you see for really bringing this to more of a mainstream from a lab? So um, some of these uh, are hurdles that we've solved and other ones still remain to be solved. One of the big uh, areas where um, we were, con uh, that came into light uh, it was during the pandemic. You know, so we were getting ready to launch all these VR initiatives in February of 2020, right. Thomas and I, and then in March of 2020, COVID hit and everything was shut down and we thought VR was going to be destroyed. I mean, you're now taking a, a head and neck, you know, sinus uh, disease that's transmitted through the nose and eyes and face and asking people to put a virtual reality headset on their face right. and maybe risk transmitting it from one patient to the next. Uh, fortunately, a, co a company stepped up and, and uh, you know, problems beget innovation. And so Cleanbox. a company, Cleanbox, stepped up and solved the problem. Um, you know, we've always known about the germ problem in healthcare, but no, the rest of the world didn't know about it. Now, the world has permanently changed in the fact that all of us, all humans, meaning not just physicians and nurses, but all humans are aware of the fact that 
bacteria and viruses are out there and that these things can transmit them. So without a, co a small company stepping up to solve a big problem like Cleanbox has done, that would have been a hurdle that was insurmountable in the hospitals. And instead, I mean, we were during the pandemic, we expanded our VR access because we now have patients that are isolated in their rooms during the pandemic that sometimes for two weeks didn't leave the room. Even women in labor weren't allowed to have their husbands there with them. But we were able to deliver VR experiences to help them with isolation and be able to mind, you know, uh, build the techniques of mindfulness and meditation. And we did that essentially by MacGyvering, strapping the, the, the clean boxes onto carts with batteries on them and wheeling them from room to room. We were able to decontaminate the headsets between patients. And we didn't have a single case of transmission in the hospital of COVID from one patient to another. So that was an example of a hurdle that was solved by another company that just you know. Helped. So thank you to Amy yes, of yes. Cleanbox, <laughs> calling Definitely. all entrepreneurs out there to come and solve some of these adoption challenges. What are some of the most exciting exciting up and coming new areas of use cases that, that we haven't talked about or touched upon yet? Uh, for me, there's a couple. Uh, number one is in, is in a vastly underserved area of medicine, and, and, and that's the world of mental and behavioral health. Uh, you know, um, this is a huge problem in the United States. Uh, it rapidly multiplied during COVID with people, isolation, anxiety, depression, addiction. Um, and these are areas of medicine which are drastically underfunded and there are not great solutions for. Um, we believe uh, that with some of the emerging technologies, capabilities of VR to create experiences, that some of this is going to change. And this is uh, in the world of digital therapeutics. So now moving, you know, just the chronic pain was the first, uh, you know, example of that. But um, now more and more of these digital therapeutics are coming online to companies like Behavior uh, who are developing solutions for anxiety and depression and social anxiety disorder in virtual reality to help patients learn to cope with going back into the world or with certain aspects of their life. Um, and the other one uh, is in the, in the realm of uh, cognitive assessments and cognitive uh, training. So um, one of the things that the modern virtual reality headsets are great at is data gathering. They're gather, gathering the position of your head. They're doing pupil tracking. They're doing, uh, you know, focusing on what you're seeing and what you're focusing on. And for example, there are algorithms now which can, by using pupil tracking, alone uh, give us the ability to assess cognitive impairment, traumatic brain injury on, on the, the field of play and uh, in, in, you know, in cases of concussion. Um, and the VR headsets uh, that are doing that are now being used uh, to perform more comprehensive cognitive assessments. And when we can identify a specific area, for example, spatial relations that may be you know, impacting a patient's cognitive performance, we can specifically build that, I use the word muscle, that muscle in the brain. So we do these comprehensive cognitive assessments in VR, which mimic, you know, rather than a paper and pencil cognitive test, which doesn't really mimic the way we function in the real world, VR can recreate your ability to be at home and find your way out in fire or remember what five things you need to do before you leave the house. And so we can assess those things and then train the patients on how to get better at them. So for a digital therapeutic in the space of cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, it, that may function either in addition to or even synergistically with some of the medical treatments. So more intelligent data that yes. can come with the adoption of this technology in the clinical setting as well. Then, then comes the responsibility of how to safely safeguard these data. Um, and that's a topic for another time. We have really run out of time. Otherwise, <laughs> I would sit here for another two hours uh, discussing these incredible uh, work that you're doing. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you for sh sh sharing with the rest of the world that virtual reality is a very profound technology that has immense use case.
ways and real world benefits on people's lives uh, today already. Yes. We don't need to wait for any um, of the hype cycles that to happen. It's already delivering true value today outside of entertainment. He's in passion with us. I'm deeply moved and I look forward to continuing this conversation. No, thanks so much for having me. And you know, as you can tell, I mean, I, this, this stuff gets me excited because it's really a great time to be in healthcare with these digital solutions coming online uh, and our ability to care for patients is just uh, improving and expanding every day. What an exponential time we live in. Yes, We're just scratching the surface and there's so much more to be done together. Couldn't agree more. Thanks for having me.